When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Draft Deeper on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. Thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful edition of Draft Deeper. Joining me as always is my co-host Stephen Gillespie, as well as my co-host Maxwell Baumbach. Although maybe I shouldn't say joining me as always, because it, it's just it's it's been a little bit of a interesting exercise to get all of us in the same room over We've the been last good two lately. three months. Mm-hmm. We have been good lately. We we get on for all of the mock posit drafts, so that's good. It's When we do a mock draft, everyone's excited to come on whenever we're talking about something else. <laughs> so somebody just doesn't want to come on. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all kidding aside. Thank you again for, for listening to this episode. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to dive into what I decided to write about this week, which if you know the, the morning dunk, you're used to reading on nosillingsnba.com my thoughts on what kind of happens from the week prior and me kind of going through the quote unquote current events and the landscape of college basketball and scouting. And then I'll hit through some games to watch for, for the upcoming week. And this is, again, this is if I'm not doing the rookie rank. So morning dunk didn't look like this this week, right? If you're listening to this podcast and then you're going to hop on no and read my piece when it goes live at 9 a.m. Eastern time, you're going to see those games of the week at the end of the piece but the real mean potatoes is a philosophical writing that, that I put together. And I was talking with some of the guys for weeks. I wanted to take a deep dive into sort of where the NBA has been trending and what does that mean for us in relation to prospect scouting. So the NBA has been, as, as I title one of the subsections in the, co- in the column, offense, 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 right? So we are seeing historical numbers take place. So the NBA during this 2022-2023 NBA season across the league, the average is 114.4 points per game. That's the highest mark since the 67-68 season. The shooting percentage, field goal percentage overall on average is 47.4%. That's the highest since the 90-91 season. Um, And then NBA, the, the offensive rating average across all teams this season is also 114.4 which is the highest ever since tracking started in the 73-74 season we are on pace for the most three-pointers attempted in an NBA regular season so you put all of those things together you can't really take away the conclusion that the highest level of defense is is being played Or, or maybe it still is I would argue that defense is actually harder now more than it ever was because of the amount of space that has to be covered. If you're attempting a lot of threes in a game, that means you you're spaced all the way out to the deep corner. You have you have at least one or two guys on the wing. Then you're operating more likely than not of like a spread pick and roll system. Maybe you're the Golden State Warriors are incorporating uh, motion offense and, and different things like that. How the court's spaced? It, it's one thing to ask 
multiple defenders to kind of stay at home on their man and not necessarily have to exert a ton of offense. Maybe they're brought into a screen. Maybe they have to switch off in an action. But when you're able to move the ball all over the place, right, skip passes, corner kickouts, and you're able to reverse, get the ball to where it needs to go, opposite side of the court, that's a lot of scrambling around that the defense has to do, right? So maybe it's not fair that we say defenses are in the toilet or nobody plays defense in the NBA anymore. I would harshly disagree with that. It's just become much more difficult because of where offense is. And so that's why I wanted to take a dive into why that matters in relation to prospect scouting. So I did a a fun little statistical query here that we're going to certainly outline and discuss throughout the course of this podcast. We'll jump into some of the NBA stuff first, and then we'll get into what the hell does that mean for the prospects that we talk about on a week-to-week basis. So, Stephen, I'll start with you. First of all, how are you doing good, sir? And second of all, what are some of the thoughts that come through your head when, when you hear those numbers? It's not just you know us shooting the shit talking about oh, the NBA, there's somebody point scorer or whatever. Like when you're actually hearing that we're on pace for a historical season, what kind of goes through your head? Well, first off, Nathan, I'm doing awesome. I'm happy to be here with both of you guys, as you you so eloquently touched on earlier. Um, Sunday is very much so a day rest for me today. I was on on the road a lot yesterday, but I'm just thrilled to be here with you guys. And Nathan, you touched on so much that I just – utterly agree with right first off the offense in the NBA a lot of people for whatever reason don't like it and I think that it's it's more fun to to watch now right than than probably it was in like the the mid to late 2000s like early 2000s late 90s that was a lot of fun but then it started getting kind of stagnant and we started seeing like the evolution of like hero ball offensive And a lot of people um, long and, and miss those the days that we grew up watching the game, right? Because we were at our most like uh, influential stages of our lives. But if we go back and watch those games, it's actually not very fun basketball. Like the floor spacing is just atrocious. It's people driving into traffic, fucking up shots that aren't clean, good looks. It, again, it was very fun. I've I very much miss those days. Like. The 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 mid two thousand Wizards were like one of my favorite teams to watch because of all the players that they had on that team. I love the Suns, you know the the bat, you know the second edition of the Bad Boys Pistons were so much fun to watch too. So there are a lot of great fun teams, but the way basketball looks now is so much more aesthetically pleasing. And I do think that defense, uh, as offensive numbers climb, the defensive numbers fall. But I'm so glad that you touched on it's. It's not that no one's playing or it's not that everyone's not playing defense it's it's just more difficult this is the most amount of space that anyone has ever had to defend Mm -hmm. and they have to do it essentially with their hands behind their back so when you look at everything that a defensive player is doing now it's far more difficult to do it you know and i think that's what people get most aggravated about is that maybe there do need to be a couple things put into the game that allow the defenders to have a fighting chance but it's not that no one's try, not trying, you know what I mean? So the, you, you made a lot of great points. Maxwell, how are you doing tonight, my friend? Yeah. And, and what, what else would you like to add into the NBA's 
growing offensive surge. Are there any thoughts that kind of stick out to you when you're watching some of these NBA games and, and mixing those in with your, your what you have on your plate as far as scouting is concerned? Yeah, it just, it, this is a very uh, just real simple way of putting it. There's just so much stuff happening on the court now. <laughs> there, like, there are just so many more actions and things going into place. There's so much more manipulation of the defense, trying to find mismatches, but even just motion and movement. Mm-hmm. throughout a play that like the kind of ball that we grew up on like it, it just seemed like a lot of teams were hey let's throw it into the post or like trying to do a worse version of like let's let's just isolate our best player on the wing and see what they do and a lot of standing and watching and like it just defense requires so much work now um that like yeah like you can have so many great big defensive players the kind of guys that you would want to feel the defense with and it's still really hard yep. to stop these offenses just between the level of talent the sheer volume of just like odd players that we've never seen before like a, a guy like like there's always been prolific shot makers so like you know even going back to like pete maravich and jerry west like there have been like those kind of guys so it's like Luka Doncic, it's like, yeah, he's he's outstanding, and he's like one of the best versions of it we've ever seen. But there have always been those kind of guys. But then like your Giannis's, your Kevin Durant's, it's like these are just kind of like the first generation of, in Durant's case, like a seven footer that shoots like that. Yeah. In Giannis's case, a seven footer with that kind of mobility. Like I always wonder, like if Shaq had come up now, like is that what he would look like? Um, yeah, it, there's just a lot of weird guys that are insanely difficult to stop. Uh, and we have this just new level of offensive strategy. It's it's a beautiful thing. I love it. I feel bad for defenses because there's so <laughs> many possessions I watch where guys are doing all the right things. A player guarding the ball will do all the right things. They won't get suckered by a counter. They won't get they won't bite on any fakes. And guys will still hit the shots. The talent it's, level it's is so Mark high. Jackson's uh, good good defense, better offense. Right. That's exactly yep. what some of those possessions end up in. And I'm glad that you talked about. There's just there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of player movement. Everybody's setting screens for each other. Everybody's trying different ways to get open. The, the the play types are still some of the same, right? Top four play types. You'd expect heavy pick and roll offense. You'd expect a lot of spot up shooting, transition game. And then obviously when plays break down, it goes to isolation ball like Maxwell was talking about. But the ways in which those offensive play types are coming about it's it's it feels much quicker now it feels much Mm -hmm. more rhythmic it feels like these guys are building chemistry by the game and playing off of each other in ways that yeah they 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 just didn't do it's not that players in previous eras couldn't play like this necessarily it just wasn't emphasized it wasn't on the plate for teams to be taking this amount of threes per game it's funny when you go back and you look at the historical three-point percentages by season in the NBA, they're not too far off from, from where the league average is right now. It's just the volume has significantly mm-hmm. increased. So the fact that the the rate at which these shots are going in has matched the high volume, that's what indicates how advanced players are as shooters today. So we've given some thoughts about where the league is trending offensively as it stands today during the 2022-23 NBA season. Listeners are a few minutes into this podcast. They're probably like, Nate, this is a draft podcast. We <laughs> want to hear about prospects. We want to hear about scouting. What the hell are you? You're, you're not an NBA podcast, to which I would say, technically we are an NBA podcast because we cover the NBA draft. But it, it's really interesting to dive into certain tidbits of, of what exactly composes rosters around the league to better understand the league in which we are scouting for. 
right? Mm-hmm. I, I I feel like that's so so undervalued when you when you look at other things on social media and and you're talking to other people within this particular draft space. Sometimes we lose sight of looking towards the NBA and actually un- trying to understand what works versus only trying to get the individual player evaluations right. So that's that's what we're diving into. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, and I would say too that one thing that we that scouts need to kind of do is based off of recent trends, like projecting those trends out too. Like if you're just drafting for what works in the next year or two, like how quickly do we see things change within the NBA yep. as well, right? So you have to kind of project a little bit further down the line as well. I agree with that 100%. So how are we going to use this data? Well, I, I really wanted to set up a, a basic query, and, and I wrote this specifically in my column. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel with, with the research that I did here. It took me a decent amount of time to put together, but I'm not trying to bring anything necessarily groundbreaking to the table. I'm trying to set a baseline at which we evaluate prospects in terms of either starting in the NBA or playing a legitimate rotation role. So really... I took the sample size of 507 NBA players who have played minutes during the 2022-23 season. I cut that down to the amount of players who are averaging 20 or more minutes per game. And that sort of gives you the idea of about a good top seven to top eight for an NBA rotation. So again, it's not just the starters. It's guys who have meaningful roles within a rotation. That cuts it down to about 242 players. So the average age of those players is 26 the average field goal percentage of those players is 47.8. The average three-point percentage is 34. Average points per game, 14.4. Average offensive rating, 115.9. Average defensive rating, 114.6. Average PER, 15.5. And an average true shooting percentage of 58.3. So those are the statistical indicators that I'm using in this query to build out a lot of the research that I did. So what does that mean, gentlemen? That means, to me, that's a pretty freaking high bar for somebody to be able to have to meet to start or play a meaningful role in the NBA. Like, we can talk about all we want. We want these rookies to come in right away, these lottery picks to blow everybody away and and put a stranglehold on one of these roles for their respective team. Paolo Bencaro, for for my money and probably for a lot of people's money, is – the rookie of the year right now, right? It's between him and Benedict Mather. And I think the money would say it, it's Paolo Bencaro is likely to win that award. He doesn't meet any one of these bars except for points per game right mm. now. He is not hitting any other one of those numbers, which is pretty insane to talk about because he he is on his way to being an all-star forward, one of the better mismatch type forward slash scorers, playmakers that we have coming up in the NBA He's not meeting these marks. So of those 242 players, let's take a look at how many players are hitting those numbers. So 41.3% of those 242 players do have a field goal percentage of greater than that average. 62.8, this is a kicker, 62.8% of those 242 players have a three-point percentage greater than that average of 34 I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler warning for when we talk about the prospects and start putting them out in buckets. You, taking a look at our no ceilings composite top 60 board, you want to know what the three-point average was for those prospects? 30%. Mm. That was the average across all prospects, 30%. So you're talking I mean, about... To be fair, some people still have Nikola Juricic on their board. 
And I'm, yeah. he is, I'm, 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 I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm Derek teasing. Lively's right. uh, three point percentage isn't good. Right. So there, there, there's, there's some, some players that just don't take threes, but there are also NBA players that are playing meaningful rotation yep. roles right now that it's the same thing. They're not taking threes. They're not taking very many. How at bad all. are their percentages? If like 64% of the players within that player pool exceed that average, then that other what thirty some odd percent is are, are terrible three point shooters. But what what do what do you think they do well though, Steven? They're either finishing at an incredibly high rate mm-hmm. inside the paint, or they are defending their asses off, which is something mm-hmm. we we are going to get to at, at some point here. So again, about sixty three percent have a three point percentage greater than thirty four percent. So we're we're trying to nitpick some of these prospects. Well. Some of them have quite a ways to go to up their percentage by another four percentage points. And that's just trying to meet a standard baseline for playing 20 or more minutes Jeez. per game in the NBA. 40.5% have a points per game average greater than that 14.4. and a half have an offensive rating greater than 115.9. Uh, 50% have a defensive rating greater than that average of 114.6, which means they're not playing up to the caliber of defense, right? We're talking about defensive rating. We want it to be lower, right? So again, offensive-driven league. We talked about all that at the top. And then 42.6% of those players have a PER greater than 15.5, and about 49% have a true shooting percentage greater than 58.3. So that all of that tells me you're not seeing those clumps of players that it's like, oh, only 20% have an average or a percentage greater than this. It's it's like between 40 and 50% of those 20 minutes or more, 20 minutes or more night minute guys are coming in higher than those numbers. So we're just trying to set the scene, set a baseline for where prospects are coming into to meet that bar. Maxwell, I'll, I'll go to you first. Does, does any of that surprise you in a way that the standards really become that high offensively does it not catch you by Um, surprise yes and no like just hearing the numbers it does a little bit but i think at the same time i've been very aware of the fact that it's just hard to play right away (laughs) in the league like it it drives me nuts when i Mm -hmm. hear people every year like oh yeah this is a guy who can like come in and play right away like right off the rip, the average don't. age of those guys is 26. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, they just think about like how many first round picks play in the G League now. Like yeah. I have to tell like casual fan friends all the time. Like fan, like I have a friend who's like a Rockets fan. He's like, we draft a guy in the first round. He's playing in the G League. It's like that's normal <laughs> now, bud. That's real normal. Like must be talking it's, about it's going to keep trending that way too because like players are just getting better and better. And is it is and is the opposite thing is happening in the draft where like you've got a league in the NBA where the players are getting better and better. And we now have a draft where players are entering younger and younger. We're not seeing guys stay as long in college. We're, we're still seeing like wait. Like last year, I think was the most freshman we've had drafted in the second round ever. Yeah. So even in the second round, teams are looking at, at guys that maybe went out a year early and are saying, all right, well, most of the time in the second round, you draft a guy, they don't end up playing a meaningful role in the NBA. So like, mm-hmm. let's just, let's just swing for the fences and take this freshman who maybe came out a little bit early. So it doesn't totally surprise me because I think the barrier to entry is very high. And that's why you see so many first year guys that aren't even, you know, not getting minutes, but not playing for their NBA team. Um, you know, Dalen Terry, another example here in Chicago, mm-hmm. like a guy who just doesn't see the floor um, for a team. That's not even particularly good. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's just the way it is. The, the bar is high. 
And, and Stephen, that's that's what we should expect as analysts when, when we're looking at some of this information. When the talent pool widens to that degree, when you make a draft selection and you want to stick them in your rotation and give them real, I'm not talking like six to eight minutes a night. I'm talking real yeah. minutes to develop their other skills. You have to be good enough to take somebody else's job. And the problem is, is the some of these guys, like we, we can pick out probably 15 to 20 guys in a draft class that, that maybe can do that or or do have the ability to do that. It's not that the other 40 and, and way after that guys are undrafted don't have the talent level to hold on to that kind of a role. They're just not ready to right now when they're coming out of college or they're just coming from overseas. And it's it, it may be deflating to, to say that, but at the same time, we, shouldn't we be using that to give some of these players a, a little bit of grace? Like I, I think you're another person on social media you're talking all the time about. We got to be patient with players and and let them develop at their own pace. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's just Nathan, the, everything that we just went over, like there's so many different pathways that my brain is going to. It's like why expansion might be a good thing. Yep. There's also I'm like how how is the play in tournament changed? Uh, you know how teams are drafting now because more more teams have a bite of the apple. Look at there's what four teams that we would say are quote unquote tanking, but they're they're not tanking. It's not like they're good teams. They are playing a lot of these younger guys and everything that we just mentioned in that previous query and and, and the metric of players that are getting meaningful playing time. How much of those young players are beneath that mark? Right, like. Paulo Boncaro will be at some point, but number one draft pick, everyone's excited for him, like a, a superstar in the making, and he's not even at the level, right? So Walker, but it but it also speaks to how important it is to take all levels of the draft seriously. And it drives me nuts when I hear quote unquote NBA podcasts will say, oh, it's a late first round pick, that pick doesn't matter, or ah, oh, it's a second round pick, that pick doesn't matter. They do. I mean, look at what the Jazz did, right? They they didn't draft Walker Kessler, right? The Timberwolves did, but obviously they identified him as a talent that he that they wanted to include, and he's given them meaningful minutes, and he played a, a significant role on a team that at the beginning took a lot of teams by surprise. Like, oh no, like we this isn't the game that we can rest our starters against now, right? So, a bunch of different pathways to go there, but I think that you two did a great job of speaking to the game is more difficult to play. And I think that one of those uh, statistics that stood out to me was that the average three-point shooting was like 34%. If you were just to go off of rhetoric alone, you would assume that the NBA average three-point shot is 38, 39%. Like you can't, you, if you're not a 40% three-point shooter, like you're not a really good three-point shooter. Like in the NBA, you can still be that 34 to 36%. But as I'm sure we're going to get to here soon, you have to bring more things to the table. Yeah, um, real quick. Sorry, I just want to butt in because Steven made a point, and I I think it's like it was really insightful, and I think worth like picking piggybacking on is like with the draft picks, um, and people kind of like devaluing those picks. It is like that is like becoming a big part of my philosophy too. Is like that's why I'm a big proponent of like the Andrew Demhard pick being so good last year, and it's mm -hmm. like if you that's why I say like if you see a guy in the second round or like late first, and you're like that's an NBA player. That's why you take them like because it is them. hard to find talent there. But also, I do wonder how much that's factored into teams not valuing second round picks going mm -hmm. forward is like we saw so many second round picks change hands at the deadline. And I wonder how much that is people being like, well, the barrier to entry is so high now that if we take a guy in the second round 
and there are guys being taken in the first round that aren't even seeing the floor. What are the odds that within the time that this player is under contract that they develop and play minutes for us? Or am yeah. I just taking a guy in the second round that goes somewhere that's, else? Like, am I better off just leaving that roster spot open? That's the thing, right? Because when when we're talking about, and we'll get into this with the prospect, but we talk about projecting these guys out as starters, how quickly are they going to actually hit that point where they can start or play a meaningful role in the NBA? Or we, we can make that projection, but how quickly can they hit that projection? If it's going to take them a few years to even start sniffing that kind of a role for a team, why is the why is that team necessarily going to use one of their picks on that player? Why wouldn't they look to go a different direction? Or why wouldn't they look to package that pick in to make a trade for somebody who is much more guaranteed to come in and play the type of role? Maybe they're one of maybe they need three point shooting. They want to package some picks together and take one of those guys who's making who one of those sixty three percent of guys who's making more than thirty four percent of the threes. Like why why draft one of these? "Quote unquote" projects, even if they have a path to being a starter, if the likelihood of them hitting that path with that team that drafts them isn't necessarily as high as some other directions they could go. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, and Nathan, dude, you could tell that we've podcasted for a little bit because that's exactly where my brain went. So, as much as I want to give NBA podcasts a hard time, I also want to give a, a, a friendly little nudge to the draft community at large because sometimes. We, we're proud of our work. We're proud of the, the the stuff that we do. And and Maxwell, you touched on this too. We can't just say that, well, this guy can come in and do this because this is what he's doing at this level. So that's why NBA teams, kind of on the other side of the coin that I was just speaking to, that might be why they're so willing to include these picks, like Maxwell was saying, is because it's so hard for a young guy to come in and contribute right away Unless you're drafting a you know a fifth year senior that had a COVID eligibility, you might not be drafting Jack Nunji just to put him in your rotation, right? Because he meets that twenty six year that twenty six year old um, average for a rotational player. So there's there's a I think there's a fine line, right, to where the draft community we can get as excited as we want to these players relative to one another, but we have to understand that the threshold is really hard for a young man to hit, but also for the NBA podcast you have to value those assets as well and bringing mm-hmm. in those guys to develop them because one of these guys could hit later on in the draft and then you get them on great value, especially like your Andrew Nemhards within the second round or your Walker Kesslers. So we took a look at some of the initial metrics that we're using to, to build out this query that I came up with and we looked at some of the offensive bars that, that these players have to hit to meet that 20 or more minutes per game criteria. You can also use this query, though, to make some fun projections even past them when we talk about potential stars and looking at some of the best in the game. We're going to do that when we come back. We're going to take a real quick ad break. And we're back. Okay, so let's go ahead and use this query to project out a little bit more. So I gave eight categories. I'm looking at field goal percentage, three point percentage points per game. So those are all really measuring how many shots can you make? How many different spots on the floor? Can you efficiently hit shots? Your offensive rating also plays a part into that defensive rating. This is where I can just make the quick disclaimer that there is no real perfect defensive statistic. Like I could compile a whole bunch of steel and block percentages and all these different things together. There's no real perfect way to measure defense quantitatively in the NBA. So that's why I just stuck with defensive rating and try to keep it simple. Cause I think it paints 
enough of a picture where you need to be able to at least hold your own on mm. out of the floor. It's not 100% offense. The title of this podcast is about finding balance, which we will continue to get more into holding your own defense, defensive rating, and then player efficiency rating, true shooting percentage. So those eight statistics together, if you want to continue to project out and not just look at starters, but the real cream of the crop, players who are averaging more than 20 minutes per game, who rate out at greater than the average in all of those statistical categories, except for defensive rating, which is technically less than, right? So you're essentially, you're, you're hitting the mark, you're above average in all those categories. I'm going to read off some names. One more statistic I want the audience as well as you gentlemen to keep in mind. Average height of a player mm. in the NBA, six foot six. Keep that one in mind. So here's the list of names we're looking at. Malcolm Brogdon, Kevin Durant, Nikola Vucevic, Donovan Mitchell, Luka Doncic, Christian Wood, Nikola Jokic, Aaron Gordon, Miles Turner, Kawhi Leonard, Jaron Jackson, Brooke Lopez, Zion, SGA, Joel Embiid, Demonis Sabonis, and Chris Stapps Porzingis. Mm. That is one heck of a picture. So the number one thing that stands out to me, guys, when we talk about prospects and we talk about evaluating guys and projecting them to be starters or more, there were two guys on that list who were below six foot six. It was Malcolm Brogdon, Donovan Mitchell. That stands out to me. That shows me where the league continues to go. That and Brogdon's pretty close. He's not far. I was going to say, yeah, Mal- Malcolm Brogdon is exactly a shrimp. Either. Right. Like, yeah. and, but Brogdon's got that thick build, right? Like he's similar mm-hmm. to like he, Desmond Bain isn't as tall as Brogdon, but they're both like they're these thick guards who that allows mm-hmm. them to hold their own defensively on the other side of the floor while also gives them a little bit of cushion to, to bang against guys and finish inside or around the basket, right? So – that's the that's the first thing that stood out to me. The second thing is that those are across all different position types. That was you had yeah. big men thrown in there, you had wings thrown in there, you had big ball primary ball handlers like SGA, like Luka Doncic, like that was across all position types. So that's how high of a bar it is to really start considering yourself a star in the NBA and being good at everything. What does that look like? That's what that looks like. All of those guys have all NBA potential, MVP potential, all-star potential, whether it's present or in the past due to some injuries. Like Chris Seth Porzingis, once upon a time, he was actually trending incredibly upwards as like an all-star, potentially all-NBA caliber player. So that query, that, that really, those are some of the things that stand out to me there. The next one to go to is players averaging more than 20 minutes per game who rate out as greater than average in all of those categories except for defensive rating right they have a defensive rating greater than the average that means they're poor on that side of the ball mm-hmm. ready for these names Him. boyan bogdanovich stephen curry tyrese halliburton norman powell jalen brunson jeremy grant pascal siakam kyrie irving larry Markinen, and bradley beal so there's a better influx there of guys who are underneath six foot six but those guys who are under six foot six they are some of the best mm-hmm. offensive players mm-hmm. across the whole freaking NBA. So if you're not improving defensively, right? Even if you're getting better offensively to hold on to that type of role or hold on to that same type of quote unquote security as you're moving to your second contract, or your third contract, and you're, you're not of a certain height to be able to hold your own better on the defensive end. 
you better be one hell of an offensive player to, to even really more of a threshold to clear. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about even more of a threshold to clear. Now, the last one's really interesting. Players averaging more than 20 minutes per game with a defensive rating less than the average. So these are guys who are holding their own or better on defense and are below average in field goal percentage, three-point percentage, points per game, and offensive rating. Marcus Smart, John Wall, Kyle Lowry, Max Struess, Victor Oladipo, Gabe Vincent, Chris Middleton. He's a he's a wonky one. He's had an up and yeah, down injury. Mm-hmm. Injury. Yeah. Herb Jones, Najee Marshall, Jose Alvarado. Cole Anthony is another weird one. He plays with a lot of size around him, so it can skew the defensive rating. Jalen Suggs, Chumo Keke, and Denny Avdia. So, so you're either a guard or a pelican. <laughs> that that's a very fair point steven but so again a number of guys on that list who are underneath six foot six but so so let's let's grind it grind the point home even further if you're not up to a certain bar offensively and you're underneath six foot six you better be a potential all nba caliber defender marcus smart john wall when, when when he was in his prime boy was that guy like cruising on some defensive teams kyle lowry we know what he does on the defensive end victor oladipo we knew him coming from college he could be one hell of a defender when he had it going herb jones jose alvarado that the list goes on and on so like these are some of the bars that some of these prospects have to clear especially if they're not of a certain physical stature or they have some athletic limitations like steven i i saw your eyebrows pop up multiple times when you're going through some of those lists, what 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 jumped out to you the most when, when we're talking about some of that stuff? It's just so crazy. And, and Nathan, I, I'm, I don't want to get your head too big here on the podcast, but I am so excited to read this piece because you have just segmented everything so wonderfully to where how often do we, when we're comparing prospects, do we kind of scrape lower on the barrel that what you're listing at right now and saying like, this is the path that this prospect could take to make the NBA. Yeah, you mean but the those, 99th mm-hmm. guy on your board where you have this belief they can do this? Well, it's not as actually easy as just saying it out loud on a podcast. So much right? harder, yeah. And the ceiling for that guy is one of the, I, I wouldn't say worse because NBA players are all incredible athletes, right? But if your ceiling for this guy is the bottom of the barrel in the NBA, so you're you're saying that if everything hit right, hits right, he could be you know, uh, an exhibit 10 contract, like two way, like even that metric is hard to hit. Right. So, I mean, you got guys on there like Chumo KK, like not, not the common NBA's fan. Like not everyone knows who that is, but we got excited about him, you know, as an analytical darling. Right. So mm-hmm. there is so much that has to hit correctly for you to hit in the NBA at a star player, at a role player level, or even at like just being on the roster level. It's just, yeah. I think this is going to be a very eye-opening piece, Nathan. I, I'm extremely excited to read it. Maxwell, what, what about you? What, what are some of your big takeaways? I know one, one of mine, one of mine really mm-hmm. quickly was Marcus Smart on that last list. It's funny how everyone wants to give Marcus Smart crap about the shots that he can't hit without factoring in all of the other things that he does well to rightfully earn his place in the rotation for a team that went to the finals last year it's amazing what can happen when you're committed to a certain part of the grind but think about also how likely it is for somebody to turn actually turn into another marcus smart those players are like yes. one in I, I don't even know what kind of 
odds I want to throw out there for that happening. That is, yeah, that to me is like one of the biggest things that jumped out is like the guards who are making it here are so stellar on the defensive end. Yeah. Like so, so stellar. And like even Jalen Suggs, like good college vendor, but like such a high level athlete that it was like, okay, mm-hmm. if if worse comes to worse, then he can he can do that. Like on the defensive end, if he's working a reduced role, whatever. But yeah, it just shows how high that bar is for smaller guys. Like you, if you are not, if you're going to be a sm- undersized guard, and it's like, oh yeah, and he's like a pretty good defender. It's like we're immediately in dicey territory. Like yeah. the water is already very <laughs> choppy in this boat that we are riding on. If that's where we're starting off with, like a guard that doesn't have size. And yeah, Marcus he, Smart was like the first non-big man to win or the first well, guard to win defensive like, player of the year in like 20 years. And I think people with like, I don't know. I don't want to be like, people don't watch the games guy. But like with Marcus Smart too, like people don't understand like he is so strong. Like yeah. so, so strong that he's in, like Pascal Siakam in the playoffs. That, like, yeah. Like I think a lot of times people will see a guy. Cause like, I've seen like case and Wallace people be like, Oh, he could be like Marcus smart or whatever. And it's like, look, like I mean, no disrespect to case and Wallace. He's a phenomenal defender. Like he's going to be a really good defender. And I think he's going to play in the NBA for a long time. But like, I think that still is kind of like underrating how good Marcus smart is. Like you're talking about one of the best defenders in the league. It would yeah. be like, if you took somebody who was like a good scorer and you're like, Oh, they're going to be like Kevin Durant. It's like, that's like a very like big leap. Like that's a well, very big projection. So, when you're So even, even take Marcus smart out of the equation, like use a name like Kyle Lowry, like shoot Kyle yeah. Lowry has been one of the best guard defenders in the league for years. There's a reason mm-hmm. why even, even though he he's kind of creeping on the doorstep of potentially, you know, it might be his time to, to retire sooner or yeah. later. There's a reason why the Miami Heat still wanted the swing to bring him in as one of their mm-hmm. next pieces to add to Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. Like, think about trying to and hit And he wasn't that. a high draft pick either. So he's no, like a, the outlier's outlier. That's mm-hmm. an outlier. Yeah. That's what I wanted to really highlight here was some of the outliers. Like, it is possible for some of these guys, we, we may not initially be like, yeah, light bulb clips immediately as to what their star path is. But think about all of the hoops and hurdles that these guys have had to jump through to get there and how difficult hitting mm. that bar actually is. It's it's just before we move into this is just my last sentence, but we're going to start talking about the prospect stuff and where this comes in, I promise. But just my last sentence really on all this is when we throw out words like starter or star or they can do this in the NBA or what does it look like for for player X to do thing Y like it's important for me to get better at just keeping in context what exactly that means. I fail at doing that all the time. Even when we're having fun conversations in our no solution chat, I fail to do that all the time. I see it so rampant on social media. We talk about all the outcomes for these players. Just take, take a deep breath, pause for one second, think about how realistic it actually is for that bar to be cleared. And then, then maybe reevaluate your position that, that you're going to take in, in an argument. That that's all. That's why uh, yeah. I'm so excited for this piece, man. Because I think it's like right before March Madness, like a lot of player seasons are about to come to an end. Like the international seasons are in, at an end. With OTE, G League, all that. Right. There's only so many prospects that we're going to be able to continue to watch moving forward. And I think that the, like having a a sobering reset at this point of the season is going to be very important. 
yeah, and I was just going to say real quick too, um, my daughter might lose it here right as I'm about to talk. So heads up, if she does her last diaper change in the night. She's really excited um, about what we're talking about. No, she doesn't even stuff. care about advanced metrics. It's terrible. <laughs> She's friend of the program, I think she'd be figuring this stuff out by now. But uh, yeah, I was, I was just going to say like, because it, it's something I say all the time. And I think it's a really important reminder if you are into evaluation. It's like, most of these guys are not going to stick. Like we overestimate floors all the time. We overestimate ceilings all the time. Like in your average draft, you're getting 20 to 25 guys that are going to like stick around long-term in a meaningful capacity in the NBA. So when you're talking about guys in the second round being like, Oh yeah, I think he's a second round pick. Like he should be a nice role player. Like then you either shouldn't think about him as a second round pick. This is, or this is a historically great draft class or like you're really not, catching on to like how this entire thing works yeah it's, it's some of this stuff and that that's why i i it's been a quite a while since i did a statistical deep dive like this this is why i wanted to go through an exercise like this to really remind myself of some of these points that we're talking about but that that's enough of some nba players so, so we we kind of know what bars we, we have to hit we have a baseline established now so let's use that baseline to evaluate where we're at as far as prospects coming into 2023 NBA draft. So I did the exact same thing. I essentially took those eight metrics. I recorded stats for our top 60 players on our recent no ceilings composite big board update. I used our big board number one, because I did not have time to pull stats for 360 players across the country. Number two, I think we do a pretty damn good job of putting together a big board on a month to month basis. Like when I look at our composite big boards, I really don't see anything that's like, wow, that's really out of place. Like how are mm -hmm. so many guys on our staff going this direction with this player? Like, I think we actually put together a really decent board as far as where things currently stand in the draft space. And some of our movements are also well-timed in terms of where we're projecting these guys to end up, maybe where their stock's going to be in a month or two. I think on a number of guys, whether it's our writing or our big boards or our mocks, like we're, we're pretty decently ahead of the curve with some of this stuff. So that's why I, I, that's the main reason why I really wanted to use our rankings for this exercise. So top 60 players eligible, regardless of minutes played, because we have some college guys in here. We have some guys playing for international clubs and it's just, it, it's different competition levels technically, but I don't use that as an, as an excuse for the statistical performance because for what Nikola Durasic isn't doing, like Maxwell so eloquently pointed out earlier in the podcast. <laughs> Sorry Steve, to throw him under the bus. Steve Sissoko has it. started doing for the G League Ignite and, and Leonard Miller. So like those are guys who are also playing up in competition. So it can't also just be- Also friends of the program. Also mm -hmm. friends of the program. So it can't just be, it's not working for one person, so it can't work for somebody else. No, this is, I, I consider this as a pretty- even playing field it's more of an even playing field than, than some would initially care to admit so those top 60 players average field goal percentage for those players 47.4 percent i'm so scared i don't know why i'm scared it's it's actually i think it's gonna be better than you think steven okay, average okay. three point percentage for those players that's a little mark so that's 30.3 percent as i shared so just a hair above 30 percent a lot of those guys got to work in their shooting. That's fine. They got plenty of time. They're 18, 19 years old. Should average points. <laughs> Sorry. Average points per game, 13.6. Average offensive rating, 108.3. Average defensive rating, 95.6. Average PER, 19.1. Average true shooting percentage, 
and a half. Before we move any further, anything stand out about those numbers? Anything you wanted to, to point out? The three-point percentage is the one that scares me. Um, yeah. Because, like, okay, so, like, we talked about, like, what, like, a league average three-point shooter is, and, like, obviously these guys are young, so a lot of them are going to get good at shooting. But I feel like this is another area where a lot of people over-project. When people are like, oh, yeah, like, I buy the shot for this guy. I buy the shot for this guy. And it's like, okay, well, most if he only has a jumper. Most guys go into the league and they are less efficient than they were yeah. going in. So if you to buy the jumper long term, I feel like you generally have to be like, all right, well, here's how they're going to get on the court to develop their jump shot while playing against this level of competition. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I I don't know. It's it's a scary. It's scary. I don't know. I, I, I the guys I tend to miss on are guys that can't shoot coming out. But well, we're going to talk. I, about I have a really hard guys. time with them. What about you, Steven? What jumps out to you? We love defense. What was our defensive rating? Average defensive rating? <laughs> the average defensive rating was 95.6. Man, go so us. There, are guys, there are guys who are playing quality defense in college. And that's a mixture of, we talk about some of the inefficiencies from three and some of the inefficiencies styles from spots play. before. Yeah. I mean, right, styles of play. Like, there's things that factor into the defensive yeah. rating being lower. The pace isn't the same. But there are a number of prospects that we can look at in this pool, some of which we are going to talk about still on this podcast, who are defending their tails off and are likely going to get drafted potentially in the first round higher than what their offense would probably merit because of it. So Mm -hmm. that is certainly a good insight to take away from that, Stephen, the defensive rating. Okay, so here's where it actually is going to surprise you in a positive way, Maxwell. Of those 60 players... 26 of them have a field goal percentage greater than the average. So that's about 43.3% of those players. Of those 60 players, 61.6% of them have a three-point percentage greater than the average. Okay. So that's that that sounds much better to you, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. it? That yeah, yeah. Better. That's just a couple guys at zero dragging down. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like for real though. Like it's yeah. your bigs, it's your guys who are having very bad shooting years. And yeah, you know, guys oh, the, it's not just anything. the bigs who are dragging it down, my friend. There that's are some true. names that that's we want true. to talk about who are dragging it down. Um, 53.3% of those guys have points per game marks greater than the average. 37 of those guys, so another 61.6%, have an offensive rating greater than the average. 23 of those guys have a defensive rating less than the average. So again, less is good for defense, 38%. That speaks to Steven. We love defense in this draft class. There are a number of guys defense. who are playing it. And Shout then PER, about, about half the half the group has a PER greater than the average, and another 61.6% have a true shooting percentage greater than the average. So depending on where you're looking, there are guys, and this is more of what we're going to get into on another portion of this pod. We wanted to pick out some guys who are superlatives on both sides of the ball, offense and defense. There are definitely some names who are dragging up some of those averages, quite literally for the group of the top 60. But this is, these are, these are the fun parts uh, of the query, right? So taking a look at the, the outliers as we did for the NBA. So, Steven, you're going to love a few names right here. I can guarantee it. I can't wait. Players that are greater than or equal to uh, the average across all of those marks amongst their peers. So these are these are the real top performers. Deron Holmes, mm. Azulis Tubelis, and this one's for Corey and the crew. Jaime Jaquez. <laughs> those are your three names. Those are your superlative performers. Mm-hmm. You can't run from them. 
He's everywhere. He's Jason Voorhees of this draft mm-hmm. class. Jaime Jaquez is everywhere. But yeah, the, the query loves Jaime Jaquez. Maybe we need to rethink not having him at a certain spot on your boards. I don't know, gentlemen. We might have to. Mm-hmm. I might have to eat some crow on, on Jaime Jaquez. Uh, players that are greater than or equal to all average marks amongst their peers, so including defensive rating. So that means they're not playing as well defensively. These names are th- this is this is the mean potatoes of some of the draft where we like some of these mid to f- late first round guys. Bryce Sensabaugh, Chris Murray, Colby Jones, Julian Strother, Mike Miles, Brandon Pachemski, and Keontae mm. Johnson. Look at that crop of guys. That mm. that gives a nice wide range, though, right? So Bryce Sensabaugh, mm. we're talking about him potentially as a lottery prospect. Chris Murray, Colby Jones, Julian Strother, like mid to late first. Mike Miles, like an early second. Brandon Pachemski's really climbed up boards. Keontae Johnson, if you can get him potentially with a top 45 pick if everything checks out. These are some guys who are popping that you might not necessarily expect to, but their offense, what they're bringing to the table is dragging them above even where their defense might pull them back in certain respects. And then the last two names, these are these are just some sad individuals, unfortunately. Players that are less than or equal to all average marks amongst their peers, and that includes the defensive rating. So these are the guys who they're defending – but they ain't showing us much of anything else in terms of efficiency across the board. Andre Jackson and Coleman Hawkins. Those are, those are individuals who I think a number of us at no ceilings have unfortunately soured upon over the last few months. Am I right or am I wrong? So Maxwell, mm-hmm. any names among those superlative groups that really stand out to you? Yeah. The, like the younger guys on the positive offensive query. Yes. Um, and when I say the younger guys, like I don't even mean Sensabaugh, but I also mean like Mike Miles, who's still like 20. A young junior. Even yeah. Even though yeah. he's a junior. And then Pods, who I think is like young for a sophomore as well, too. So like you got those two guys that are, you know, already putting up like these kind of sneaky campaigns where it's like the people that know, know. Like the people that are yeah. in the mud, the sickos, they like these guys. The mainstream consensus isn't quite there yet. But the people that are really paying attention like them and then like you see them kind of pop up on this sort of query. They're young mm-hmm. for their grades. They're super productive. And like they're in like Pajemski, it seems like this week, like everybody's like strapping the rocket to him, even yep. at points like degrees that I'm not even fully comfortable <laughs> with. But like yeah. it seems like everybody's finally kind of bought in on what he's doing. But you, you take, yeah, a list like that into consideration. And like the fact that he I tweeted this out the other day. I keep a log of like players that are sticking or are going to stick in the NBA over like the last nine years. And just like, what were their stats? Like their final college season, Pajemski rebounds like a forward. Like he rebounds above the rate of like threes and fours. And like Mike miles, like another guy where it's like, there's like freaky rim finishing stuff going on with him too. So um, those were the two guys like them and sensible where it's just like, all right, I like those guys a lot. And I feel kind of like vindicated a little bit seeing them on this kind of list. It makes me the, feel good about them. The numbers are outcrying for them, mm-hmm. Steven. I know you have some words to say on a few of those guys. Uh, the only thing that I'll I'll, I'll ignore the Pajemski. You, you guys know that that you know been been a fan of him for a long time. But to Maxwell's point, like when trying to find things that differentiate, like what works for people who make it to the NBA. I think people would be surprised if they did take like a positionally like a deep dive of the last 20 something years and see that rebounding rate, no matter what percent or what position you play, 
that even like the smallest of guards will have a good rebound it's, rate. Yeah, it's higher than you think generally. Yeah, that, and, so, that and block percentage are the two where I'm always like, mm-hmm. that is like a sneaky important factor that I think a lot of people don't pay as much yeah. attention to as they should. Bl- blunks are important. Blunks translate very well. But the, <laughs> <laughs> but the, it's, it's coming back. But the one player that I, I feel super vindicated about to piggyback off of what Maxwell was just saying, Azulis Tabellis. I, I still love him a lot. I'm still flirting with the idea of him being a first round guy on my board. He's just, he does so many things well, and he's not just a plotting collegiate bid man. Like he moves so well in the open floor. Like he's, I think the, I think the notion of him, and again, he plays on the West coast. So there will be like this West coast bias where people aren't necessarily going to be watching him all the time because he plays late. He just moves like an NBA big. He passes like an NBA big. He scores, he rebounds. The defense is a little so-so. Um, I, I think there are ways for him to work, and I mean that in the ways that we just spoke about previously, not just as like a sicko draft guy. I I actually – so I knew you were going to give the Tubella shout-out. I'm surprised you didn't give Deron Holmes the, the shout-out. I think you're a Deron Holmes guy Nick, as well, aren't you, Steven? Nick is the bigger Deron Holmes guy. Okay. I still have him as a first. I have him as a first, and I would say that the, the passing that he shows um, at his position, it kind of reminds me – a little bit of what Rob Williams is good at and as well as blocking the jump shots too. So I think that he does a lot of really good things well, which is why I have him in the first round. But um, I think that that Nick is the, uh, the uh, enthusiast. I'm giving him some words in my column this week because he was in the mid major Mm -hmm. game of the week I did. And like, there's still just some really encouraging stuff with his offensive game too. Like I, there are some games I watch them. I'm just like, this isn't very exciting. And then other times I watch them. I'm like, this is like, this is, this is good. If this all comes together, like there's a really, really good player in here. And he still has room to get stronger too. And once he does, so, I think that shows up a lot of the, the mm-hmm. interior defense concerns that I'm, that I have a little bit. So, so here's the case for, for Deron Holmes. He's a sophomore big man. So still relatively mm-hmm. young. So when we talk about breaking out this query piece by piece, and then we'll move into some of the other names that either popped or didn't pop. Deron Holmes, 59.7% from the field. The three-point shooting the, to really carry him to be in that cream of the crop, 33.3%. That yep. may not jump out to you as like, oh, he's an amazing shooter. But to A, be above the average amongst this player group and B, still be relatively close to what, what's considered to be an NBA league average of 34%, that pops to me with a high volume, low volume I'm, I'm not looking for big men to shoot a high yeah. volume of threes. We're looking for you to be willing to take them. And then when you take them, can you make a certain number of them? So it's a great point a for, for a player of his position well, and a style of play. And it's funny. Cause that was like one of the things I touched on in the column. And it's something that bared itself when I saw him in person too, is like, he's willing to take those shots and he can hit them. And like, it's opening up more stuff for him because he can be a good handoff passer and things like that and that's like mm-hmm. the one the passing is like one area of his game where like i'm kind of let down this year i was hoping to see more from him there um but even now just because he'll take like a long two or a mid-range jumper or a three is like it allows him to leverage his quickness more against slower bigs like yeah. guys will like be like oh i i guess i have to close out here and whatever and like he has a quick first step for a five um so if he gets the right matchup that's a tool that he can use yeah, and then 18.3 points per game, an offensive rating of 117, a defensive rating of 92.3, a PER of 26.9, and a 62.5 true shooting percentage. 
So you can factor in some of the rebound rates. You can factor in how well he blocks shots around the basket, like Steven was talking about. Some of the passing flashes you're seeing. All of a sudden, Deron Holmes looks like one of the more complete big men in this NBA draft class, which I think was that was the song that Nick was trying to sing to us when we were updating our boards this prior time. I, I kind of slept on Dayton. I hadn't watched Dayton for a little while, but coming back and seeing some of what Deron Holmes is doing and what he's really been doing for longer than I thought, yeah, he's he's looking more and more like a potential first-round pick by the day. So he, he really popped off on that query for, for good reason. So before we get into some names that we wanted to break out and discuss a little bit more at length than, than just listing them off, these are the individual players who scored out well by the query that, that the query likes. So when I say that, I mean five or greater categories, they are equal to or above average in those marks amongst their peers. So there are going to be some major non-surprises. There may be a few surprises towards the end. So Victor Wemanyama, Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller, Jairus Walker, Jet Howard, Grady Dick, Max Lewis, Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Hendricks, Jordan Hawkins, Chris Murray, Colby Jones, Marcus Sasser, Trace Jackson Davis, Deron Holmes, as we talked about, Jalen Wilson, Derek Lively pops up here. We're going to talk about Derek Lively in, in a little bit. Julian Strother, Jalen Clark, Mike Miles, Adam Bona, Azulis Tubelis, Kobe Bufkin, another fun sleeper mm. riser and no ceilings, who I'm loving more and more every time I watch him. Leonard Miller, Jaime Hawkes, C.D. Sissoko, Ricky Council IV, Brandon Pachemski, Keontae Johnson, and last but not least, because Max Wall found a way to sneak him out of the no ceilings composite board, although I- I'm going to be with you in a second, Maxwell. He should be much higher than where he is yes. on that board. Yeah, Tucker DeVries is also popping on that query any names stand out to you in terms of the positives maxwell uh leonard miller like i he's like the one guy like when we talked earlier like we look at our board and we're like man like i i really like this leonard miller is the one that like kills me like he's the one guy that like when i look at our composite board i'm like we're sagging on leonard miller um and i have him high i have him like 21 22 somewhere around there um yeah, I just think he's like hyper productive in a professional league. And like, do not get me wrong, like the flaws exist. Like he he can foul a lot, he can be turnover prone, uh, he can miss some rotations, but like ultimately he is producing and he's doing it in a professional league while being extremely raw and having not faced this level of competition like at all prior to this, and having been kind of a disaster in the combine a year ago. And like he's he's gotten so far so quickly. Um, and like, we just see it with growth spurt guys all the time. Now, like we saw it with Trey Murphy. We saw it with, mm. with friend of friend of no ceilings, Jalen Williams this past year. Like there's something to the, these growth spurt guys that like, I think they just get it a little bit later sometimes. Um, but just that the year over year improvement that we've seen from him and the fact that he's coming up, he, that he's rating out positively on something like this. I I'm, I'm just in on him as a first round player. Steven, the other fun tidbit that we can throw out is that was 30 names of those 30 names. Eight of them are underneath six foot six. So this is another indicator. Less than a third are underneath that six foot six mark. That means the overwhelming majority of these guys were we're looking for size across all position groups. That's what we're looking for. What else stands out to you? I mean, I just 
real quick about the size. I still think that you can find values in players that are like six three, six four. You can. I think once you kind of get underneath that six three, and it's funny how many college guards are listed at six three that probably aren't because once you fall beneath that, it's like very very hard to make that threshold. But so uh, just Scoot, Scoot Sasser and Mike Miles would be the ones who stand out right there, right? Like they're bringing yeah. so much offensive value to the mm-hmm. table to where that on top of some of their physical attributes, you can look past the size to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. And just shout out TJD. Um, I've been a big, I've been a big proponent of him as a first round guy, even coming into the preseason. Um, I think I've only had one board where I had him as a high second. And then I was like, Nope, I don't feel good about this. Let me put him back up. I think that here soon we will start seeing this the consensus coming around on him because if you just do a deep dive into what he's doing, like he it's NBA players, like mainstay NBA players. There's no I, I have a real hard time not seeing him stick in the league. So I have him kind of in that similar range to like Leonard Miller, actually maybe a little lower, like around twenty-three to twenty-five. I think that he has huge staying ability. He's got the bloodline and he's just consistently been at the been at the mark and this year adding the 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 playmaking that he has positionally that just pushes that just pushes him over the top to me. So shout out to everything that Trace Jackson Davis has been doing. The crazy thing about all 30 of those names is there really isn't someone that sticks out like a sore thumb like I can't see the world in which this guy, you know, yeah. can't become a starter not saying that it's likely for all 30 of those guys to become nba starters but there's not one that really is like yeah i i don't see it i i think it's like a 0.1 percent chance like these guys all have pretty legitimate outcomes to become rotational guys 20 or more minutes a night guys and a decent amount of them i do think one day maybe not immediately but one day i do think a decent amount of them are going to become nba starters so that mm. that's the other interesting thing that really comes out last but not least before we go to another quick break the 30 players that did not rate out as well so <sighs> a man in a sore thompson surprise surprise nick smith has been up and down anthony black Derek whitehead rain repair julian phillips nicola durisich andre jackson arthur kaluma Ware, dylan mitchell Coleman Hawkins, Kevin McCuller, Tyrese Proctor, Baba Miller, and Naquan Tomlin. I didn't read off all 30, but these are these are the guys that the query really didn't like, this group right here. So all those guys were either two or less categories where they rated out ab- above the average in those metrics that we outlined. So any any names quickly that that stand out amongst you guys there? Any guys that you still like out of that crop? I just I – mean, the Thompson story. twins yeah. continue to be – like the the enigma the enigma and i just i'm starting to kind of cut ties a little bit from everything that they were supposed to be i get that they're athletic freaks of nature i would just like for them to be good at basketball uh the quan tomlin is the one that like i want to step in and make an excuse <laughs> for uh just because he has such little he's basketball so experience like he's the one yes. guy where it's like yeah it doesn't bother me like he's the one where it's like yeah, yeah like i'm not i'm not really phased by it um, and, and I have him in the second round. Like he would be like an early second guy for me. Mm. Um, but he's the one that I saw and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't move me. But that's, I mean, his circumstance is very different than most players. 
Yeah, and the way I would think about the guys who who ended up here, who are you know, th- this is this is what the, the guys who the query really didn't like. It's not not that you can't have these guys high or at certain points on your boards. I think this is more just laying out the pathway to them being the best versions of themselves might not necessarily be as easy as we might have once thought coming into this process. That's how I would uh, illustrate how I would could think we, about that in, in terms of our audience. Go ahead, Steve. I think you wanted to jump. Could we call that like the theoretical batch? Like, I mean that there are more, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot that you, that has to go right for them to, to hit at their absolute, absolute best. I think it's true. I mean, like, I feel like a lot of those guys have like a longer developmental tail or a more complicated yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it doesn't mean that their outcomes aren't good. Like the, oh, the Tom sure. like possible outcomes are obscene. Um, but it does like still require quite a bit to go right. I agree wholeheartedly. So we're going to take one more quick break. And and when we come back from said break, we're going to discuss some guys who are one way or the other, as we see it on the totem pole, right? They are either so far ahead offensively of the curve to where they have raised their draft stock dramatically, where if they weren't hitting some of those shots, would they still be at the same place? right? Where's that balance that we can maybe find? And then on the other end, who are the guys who are defending their tails off, who just have struggled to climb up boards because of some of their offensive shortcomings? And what can they maybe do to keep climbing and ultimately get to where their talent suggests they could end up? We will be right back with that. All right, we are back. So this is part of the exercise where I reached out to both Maxwell and Steven beforehand, before I really wrote the meat and potatoes of my column. And again, there's going to be more detail that you can find when that column goes live, no ceilingsmba.com. But we wanted to break out some of our own fun superlative guys. So we're going to start with the offense heavy group. So these are guys where their offensive metrics are really carrying their draft stock. And that's for a good reason. We just talked about at length how the NBA is trending towards being efficient in certain particular areas offensively, especially when it comes to three-point shooting, when it comes to being able to hit different types of shots on the floor. Offense, offense, offensive. You can't hit a certain number of shots. You are less likely to play a certain number of minutes per night in the NBA, especially early on in your career. That, that's, that just seems to be a fact given everything we've done with this exercise. So who are some of those offense-heavy guys where they're hitting a lot of shots now? If they weren't hitting as many shots, maybe we wouldn't like them as much, depending on where they sit on the defensive side of the ball. Maxwell, you've talked about your name plenty on this podcast, but I do think there's room for more discussion on him because somehow mainstream evaluators still haven't really caught on to ranking him I think more appropriately, maybe you're a little bit on the high end in terms mm-hmm. of his draft stock, but I do think he should be not just on draft boards, but really pushing for top 45 consideration. You want to talk about Tucker DeVries? Yeah, so with Tucker, I think he's just a much more complete offensive player than a lot of people realize. Um, so he's averaging 19.2 points per game. He is 45.6% from the floor, 39.4% from three, taking almost seven a game, 84% free throw shooter. And these threes are like high level of difficulty threes. He is getting the best defender on the other team every single night. 
Um, the conference he plays in, it's a mid-major conference, but it's not a bad one. Um, he gets so much defensive attention and like, these are shots off of movement. Like this is not a guy who is standing and catching and shooting, going straight up, straight down. Uh, he's doing a lot of it off the dribble. He's, he grades out like excellent in synergy pick and rolls. Like he can really dribble the ball, really keeps it low, knows how to attack a closeout. has some craft to him. Uh, averaging under two assists per game, but like is a really, truly good passer. Um, and those assist numbers just don't pop in the way that I feel like they should. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a team that, you know, average three point volume, good three point percentage, but Tucker is the shooter. So he doesn't get to pass it to guys as good as himself. So it kind of drags down his assist numbers a little bit. Um, and then defensively, like the numbers aren't great but if you watch the games like he's okay he does not get suckered like he doesn't bite on fakes which is like the more nba i Uh watch the more i just realize like discipline is such an important defensive skill like if you can just like remain in front and not fall for everything kyp baby know your your personnel yep yeah and uh off the ball he's he's pretty good like he's not a guy who's gonna dart passing lanes or meet opponents at the rim. He did some of that as a freshman and he hasn't this year. I don't know how much of that is just like the increased role and volume, but um, he got into position really well a lot last year, but off the ball now, like he just never gets back up. Like he monitors a man and ball better than just about anybody in this class. Um, and I think he's just such a good shooter and has enough stuff outside of his shooting. That, like if you can, your teams are always looking for guys that knock down shots, have size and can make quick decisions. And he does all of that. Like I, I trust him a lot and guys who I trust are like, that's a huge, huge factor for me in liking a player. It's why I like a guy like case Wallace. It's why I like a guy like Jalen Hutchifino is like, they might not have the, the highest sexy ceilings, but like, boy, do I trust them on a basketball court? And that's where I am with Tucker too. We didn't mention those two guys in particular in the long list mm-hmm. of names. They were very close to being in the, the good bucket is what mm-hmm. we would want to label it in terms of breaking out that query. I am growing on, we're all growing on Jalen Huchifino more by by the minute, not even the hour or the day. It is quite literally by the minute. Case and Wallace is still rock solid, as you talked about. Max, well, I'll, I'll stick up for Tucker a little bit here. The defensive numbers actually aren't as bad as, as one might think. So first of all, he's six seven. He's he's a big guy, right? So he, it's not like he's a smaller wing. He has enough size to him. 54th percentile per synergy defending against spot-ups. 71st percentile defending in pick and rolls, 76th percentile defending jumpers, 67th percentile defending at the rim. So we're talking about a guy who I could go through all the offense percentiles. You did an excellent job, Maxwell, laying out. This guy can be a nuclear shooter. He rates out in the 93rd percentile offensively, and he's doing it in so many different ways. If you're getting that type of offensive value, you don't need Tucker to be a lockdown defender in the NBA you just need him to do his job, which he's proven at Drake he can do. He is an attentive defender. He, he's a coach's son. He knows what he's doing out there. Like, I, I've I've actually grown to like Tucker as well. I, I wasn't necessarily wild about him. I knew why you liked him, Maxwell, but actually digging back and watching some of the film, I am coming up on him as a guy who, especially given where the offense is going in the NBA, we need to value somebody like him more. And speaking of valuing somebody more, if you are one of the last people trying to hold out on coming over to Bryce Sensabaugh Island, mm-hmm. allow me to just 
allow this podcast to just be your ticket to you. You are more than welcome to come to the island, fly on in. I got a big old hotel set up for you. It's a, it's a five-star resort. You get all the works. There's plenty of room to come in on Bryce Sensible Island because he is still, I mean still, 87th percentile in total offense, 70th percentile in spot-ups and isolations, 64th in transition, 50th in pick and roll, 94th on post-ups. I love that funky post-up turnaround game he has. That stuff is awesome. 73rd on handoffs, 99th percentile working off screens, 97th on putbacks. Love the offensive rebounding stuff. So it's not just the jump shooting that I'll get into in a second. He's doing some of the dirty work on the boards as well. He's averaging, I believe, over eight rebounds per game or close enough to it. 94th percentile on all jump shots. 96th percentile on guarded catch and shoot shots. Think about that. So we we, we were just talking about how hard it is to play defense. When, when defenders actually scramble and get to where they're supposed to be and close out properly, Bryce Sensabaugh is still in the 96th percentile in terms of knocking those shots down. And then the 89th percentile on unguarded catch and shoot. So you, you, you can leave him open. That's great. That's not going to work out in your favor, given where he rates out as a jump shooter. You can try and guard him. He is one of the best tough shot makers we have in this entire class. Now, he needs to be better than 48th percentile finishing at the rim. But one of the points that Steven and Maxwell were both talking about earlier is we, we see these areas of cramped space in college offenses. Boy, has Ohio State been that this year, right? Justice Suing is a guy who really loves to operate from, from the elbows and the mid-post area. He can sort of muck things up a little bit. Some of the other guards that Ohio State has, like Bruce Thor and Isaac Likely, like they, they aren't legitimate floor spacers, at least not right now in Thornton's case. Zed Key or Felix Akpara, they're either posting up or they want to be in the dunker spot, so they're taking up space. So where is poor Bryce Sensebaugh supposed to go in terms of effectively driving to the basket? Unless somebody gives him a screen up top or he's working off a handoff, chances are if he's trying to do everything by himself, give it a little shake and bake, there's probably somebody else there in the spot that he's trying to get to. So that Ohio State offense has been a little bit of a nightmare. They've been a bad team this year. I've, I've actually been really disappointed with what I've seen from Ohio State. They have the talent to be a much better team in the Big Ten. But nevertheless, Bryce Sensabaugh has been the one to attempt to steer that ship. And he's still done it offensively, certainly. While, oh, by the way, he still rates out in the 55th, 55th percentile in total offense. And this is something Maxwell and I were talking about off the air uh, I, I think it was earlier in, in the prior week. He may get lost in space. He is not the fleetest of foot. I would not want him playing a style of defense where he's banking on recovering and being able to make a play on the ball. But when he sticks to his band, he is fine guarding one-on-one -on -one in certain situations. He's fine. He is one of these guys who, as he continues to get in better shape. He certainly got in good shape to be where he is now at Ohio state, but he was, he, he had to get into better shape compared to where he was in high school. As he continues to work on his body and develop some of those skills in the NBA, develop chemistry with his teammates and build to be a better team defender. You're talking about all of the value you get with him offensively. I, I just, I, I don't, Steven, I, I don't understand why people are not coming more around to, to Bryce Sensible. You don't have to have him as a top 10 pick, but I, for at least for me, maybe you guys don't feel the same way. Maybe you do. I don't really see 15 other guys who are giving me more potential value for Bryce Sensball when we talk about what's actually working for starting caliber players in the NBA or guys 
who are playing more meaningful roles. So I think we've knocked both of those names out of the park. And I know Steven's about to knock this name out of the park. He picked a great one for one of these offensive heavy guys. Where are you going, Steven? So I'm going to go Jet Howard, and I want to first start off with the good about him being an offensive-only player, right? He's playing about 31 minutes per game. He's got a minute percentage of almost 68 and an almost 23% usage percentage. He's giving you over 14 points per game and shooting. Here's the the bad thing about the offense, right? He's shooting almost 37% from deep, which is fantastic. He's shooting under 42% from the floor overall. Right. So now we're kind of putting him into a spot to where, oh, and get this, he's averaging slightly more than four two point attempts per game, but he's averaging over seven three point attempts per game. Now, I know that this might be a schematic thing because anything around the basket is going through and only through Hunter Dickinson at Michigan. Right. So all the two point percentages are coming by way of him. But I would still, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to stick with the good. The three-point shooting is phenomenal. Like the he can do it off of the dribble, he mm-hmm. can do it off of screens, he can mm-hmm. do it off the catch. He can. There's no shortage of ways that that Jack can succeed um, as a shooter in the NBA. Oh, and he is averaging over two assists per game, right? So his ability to put the ball on the floor and find the open man is also another great development for him offensively. Here's the kicker: the efficiency around the basket is is, is not that great. Um, 35th percentile finishing at the rim. Yep. And not, not getting there a ton either. <laughs> not <laughs> getting there a ton either. I mean, of those 4.3, um, two point attempts per game, maybe one, maybe one is like right at the basket. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. Also, he, he makes great decisions though. So the processing and everything, right. He's got a 10.8 turnover percentage, which is very good, right? Great turnover percentage for what he's doing with the ball in his hand. He's shooting 50% on his twos. He's got a very low free throw rate, so he's not getting to the to the line either. So the offense is kind of a mixed bag to where the stuff that is very important in the NBA is spacing the floor. He can do that. He can move the ball. He's got good connective ability. Mm-hmm. My concern is the rest of his game, right, with the rebounding, very, very low rebounding rates, like crazy low rebounding rates. I think – let me see here. 1.2% on offensive rebounds, eight and a half on defensive rebounds. Those are scary bad. Like those aren't just like, um, no, those are scary bad. And again, this might be a Michigan thing. He's got four dunks on the season as well. Uh, he's made all four. He's four, four on dunks, but then we get to the defense. I mean, it's bad. The pick and roll stuff is what's the worst. And that that rates out actually by Synergy's numbers. He's in the 16th percentile defending scoring opportunities in the pick and roll. That's also like bad because it, you're, you're like, that's the worst part. And I was like, is it? Like in my head, like, you know what I mean? Like it's still just like, it's like the off-ball attentiveness stuff is like rough too at times. Like there's a lot. There's a lot that needs to change. He, he's like another he's one gonna of those get guys like, rolled to death slow, at his posi- like. Yeah, at his position, he's going to get pick and rolled to death. And great passers are going to be able to take advantage of them defensively. So I think Jet is like a perfect case study for what type of offensive only player will succeed at the next level. Granted, he does have the bloodline. Again, sees the floor very well, like processes the game. I think he sees everything that's happening. I just mm-hmm. I don't know about the, the like how responsive he is to the things that he's seeing in every aspect of the game. He's another one of those guys like Brass Sensabaugh where if there's somebody right in front of him, he can hold his own. 83rd percentile sure. defending spot ups, 
51st defending isolation, 66th defending all jump shots overall, 74th percentile defending at the rim. So again, if he's in the right situation and it's within the right context, he's not always horrible, but it's everything that happens away from the ball. And when you get him in these really heavy screen and roll actions, yeah, you can find ways to pick him apart defensively. But if you're getting all of that offensive value, I mean, shoot, like, Six seven, big body, right? Like that's what we're looking for. Yeah, he's got a still percentage of less than one percent. That's pretty that's wild for like a win. Yeah, that's yeah, it's like point point eight, and his block percentage is like around two. I think it's like two point one, two point three, something like that. So, yeah, not a big blunt guy. Uh, not a big. No, it's defender. a fair case. Like if yeah. if Tucker DeVries, Bryce Sensabaugh, and Jet Howard were not hitting shots at the rate that they were. We wouldn't be talking about them in the same way that we are in terms of these draft discussions. So it is, you, you, there really is a a tight line in terms of finding that balance, right? It's not, it's not just being an offensive threat. It's finding enough of a balance to where you're not sinking your team on either end of the floor too heavily one way or the other. Right. So that's, that's still the key at the end of the day. That's what separates those top prospects. Victor Womanyama, Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller, Jairus Walker, that. That's what separates those guys at the top of the draft, right? Yep. I, I get Jairus Walker's another one of those guys where if he wasn't hitting the shots that he is, we wouldn't talk about him as like a potential top five guy, but he is hitting those shots and he's defending like a top five prospect in this draft. So that's why we've all really come up on Jairus. So you're you're walking that tightrope. Let's let's go the other way. Let's let's wrap up this podcast by talking about guys who they're defense-heavy prospects to where they're they're doing what they need to do on that end, but because of certain warts in their games offensively, they haven't risen up to where their overall talent package, their physical attributes, their motor would suggest they could potentially climb up to, or even in the extent of who you're going to talk about, Steven, Derek Lively, where mm-hmm. he was preseason. So why did you choose Derek Lively? Well, so because the offense is – the thing that I think everyone is the most disappointed about, like myself included, because former number one prospect overall in his draft class, I think that the the idea of him developing as a shooter, um, at least mm-hmm. some sort of like on-ball game, was kind of the selling point of him. So for Lively, he's giving you almost 19 minutes per game, um, about 43.5 minutes percentage, uh, 14% usage percentage, five points, five boards, one assist, which is actually pretty surprising. Um, Nathan, the, I think the reason that a lot of those categories that you spoke to about Lively um, looked at him so kindly was because he finishes really well around the basket, right? Um, 63.2% um, percent around the basket, but 9.1% from deep, 63% from the free throw line. He just offensively, there is so much that he has to work on to improve his game still. And mm-hmm. Duke has not been the environment for him to be able to explore the studio space in that aspect. But the great news for Derek Lively is that he is he's growing as a defender, I will say. Um, 2.3 blocks per game, half a steal per game. His per 40 numbers are pretty alarming. They're pretty though. nutty. If you look, especially, Nathan, the thing that stood out to me was 5.6 fouls per game. Right. So the thing that we're looking at with Lively, him being lauded as a defender, and he's a, he's showing to be a, a pretty gnarly uh, rim rim deterrent. He's got that Jaron Jackson Jr. 
thing to him to where he's going to go after and he's going to block a lot of shots, but at what cost, right? So maybe this is speaking to why his uh, inclusion into the offense hasn't been as much as what we would like because as threatening as he is around the rim, he's still a little bit undisciplined, but I do think that there is a great foundation there for him to be. Yeah. Do you think it's more that he's that undisciplined or do you think his lack of strength really puts him in a bad position more times than not? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of the undiscipline because the off, I th- so I, certainly the, the strength aspect of it is a big factor, but also I think because he's not as much as a focal point on the offensive end that he's trying to kind of make up for it a little bit defensively to where like, and, and I think this speaks to him as a teammate, right? Like, okay, I'm not an offensive guy, but I'm going to rebound the hell out of the ball, and I'm going to play the most important position defensively in the NBA, by the way, is the center, right? I'm going to try to be the best that I can be at being a defensive anchor, and I think that he's improving. He's growing in that regard. I just think that – I and I think that that can be taught down too, right? Like, hey, we can, we can teach you to be a little bit more disciplined, but I do think that he is a little too eager on that side. When when he's hitting home runs on defense, he is trending more towards the the Jaron Jackson argument, like you laid out. Not that yeah. we're comparing him directly to Jaron Jackson, but no, we're talking about like on never. the scale, we're talking about trending closer to one player or the other. When he's not defending at that level, like he was in that Duke North Carolina game, he is very much so, especially in the offensive department. He is he is on the 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 Daniel Gafford offensive plan, and that. That's kind of what started to scare me with Lively. I saw a lot of Daniel Gafford in him, mm. and it, it concerned me. It scared me off. Now, we've seen the Stevens point. We've seen a lot better defense over the last month, and I think he has started to clean up some of his yeah. warts. He has been a, a mammoth rim protector, right? He has mm. been one of the better shot blockers that, that we have, along with another big man who we will probably give credit to at some point on another podcast, Den Bona, has also mm. been a, a really fabulous rim protector in certain regards but yeah lively lively rates out in the 94th percentile in terms of total offense but it is the simple of the simple the the daniel gafford arms fed no plan within <laughs> within arms reach he's Maxwell, got 40 dunks on the year he's at 40 of 41 dunks yeah he's he's super athletic he's springy yeah. he gets up off the ground really well that helps him in the rebounding department because he doesn't have the strength to box anybody out i don't love his box out technique either so no, that's we're screening that's, <laughs> or, or screening yeah that yeah he, he there are some things about his game that really need to come along particularly him building out his offensive repertoire to really be like yeah I, i'm i'm worth a top 15 top 20 pick or start to even trend back to shoot where he was preseason like some people had him yours truly like top 10 and that clearly mm-hmm. was not where i should have had him preseason but that's part of evaluating these prospects we learn a lot throughout season maxwell you chose a great name to talk about in terms of defense heavy prospects a guy who at certain points man he's trended in a much better offensive direction i think it's probably just the inconsistency that's leaving him where he's at in this discussion i think you want to talk about jalen clark yeah so jalen clark is like the one guy that i feel like i have been like lagging the no ceilings consensus on throughout this entire season. Like I, I really wanted to like be sure that the shot was real. And I think it's, it's more real. Like it's definitely improved substantially. Like there is a volume and percentage increase that are 
both like very substantial over a one year period. Um, but I am like very concerned with how it's fallen off during conference play. Um, and I'm also a little worried about just his size um, because he is like right on that six, six cusp, a little mm-hmm. bit under it. And he's very thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, yeah, I, I, I get that you can, you know, read these passing lanes exceptionally well, but when you were face up with like bigger players, are you going to be able to contain them or are they going to be able to just plow right through you? And when your gambles are your gamble, like, with Tari, it was like, okay, the gamble's transferred up. Like, his ability to know what he can and can't get to scaled up exceptionally well. And, like, is that going to be the case for Jalen Clark? And if it's not, then what? Then um, what, yeah. Yeah, he he just kind of freaks me out a little bit. Um, and since the turn of the year, he's shooting 40.3% from the field. So it's like the the offensive bar is going to be, like, it's – it's not starting a great place. He's, he's 34.2% from three in that same stretch. So not a terrible shooter. Um, but there's just so little to his offensive game that there's no margin for error with the defense. And given the nature of how he plays defense, where it is a lot of like, I'm shooting a passing lane and given his lack of strength, um, I'm, I, I just have a hard time getting there with him. Dang. It's funny. You bring up Tari Eason. For, for for a number of respects. So when we talk about offensively, he's in the 90th percentile in transition. He's in the 83rd percentile finishing at the rim. It's funny how a lot of his at-the-rim stuff is exactly that. It's in transition. Now, he's he's done some work in terms of taking people off the bounce. He's worked out of some more pick-and-roll sets this season. I'm not sure that I buy a, a, a decent amount of that translating at the NBA level. So then he really becomes a spot-up guy. And if he's not hitting those spot up threes at a decent clip, like we outlined, what, what does it take to be a 20 minutes or more a night guy in the NBA 34% consistently from the NBA three point line. If Jalen Clark is coming and going from the college line, where's our confidence level in terms of how well is he going to be able to shoot it from day one in the NBA. And then the other point, Maxwell about the defense, he talked about the, the, the gambling man. He is, if he's not face guarding somebody, Right. If, if that's not what he's, if he's not face guarding somebody, there are some pieces to his defensive game where it, if he's, he's either face guarding somebody or he's playing passing lanes, looking for deflections, those easy turnover opportunities. If he has to actually scramble and make an educated read on the ball in some senses, it, it just, it, it breaks down for him at some points, 40th percentile, depending on spot ups, 25th percentile, depending in the pick and roll. 38th percentile defending on jumpers overall. You would think some of those numbers would be better because of his, uh, because of his, his reputation, mm-hmm. but you, you said it perfectly. The Tari Easton style gambling man, when it works great, but you know, to, to have the leeway to do those things more often, Tari was also six, eight with a, yeah. whatever his freaking wingspan is. You yeah. Know, and he's, and he's stronger. He's bigger. Yeah. He's thicker. Like shot there's better. a million. Yeah, exactly. Better shot, better shooter better offensive player like just yeah yeah i actually okay this is my hot take i think i like jalen clark as a passer better than i liked tari easton a year ago like i don't don't think that's a hot take at all what that means but like (laughs) it's not a very meaningful thing to say but but yeah that's like the one one thing i'll give him offensively over tari but otherwise like tari just blew him out of the water like tari was scoring like 21 points per game off the bench like it was ridiculous it's amazing what happens to your draft stock when you do not have that plus size and shooting combo 
fun, fun, mm. funny how that works. I am last. I chose to discuss Rain Repair, and I actually did discuss a, a number of details about him with Tyler Rucker over on Home and Away when Tyler graciously hosted me on, on that podcast episode. But listen, defensively, his size, his athletic profile, his ability to defend on the ball, defend off the ball, all of his defense percentiles per synergy, he is literally what teams want in a mm-hmm. defensive prospect. He is big, long, massive, everything about it. Problem is 41st percentile in total offense. The jump shot is absolutely come or go. I get it. He's shown a few interesting things in terms of shooting off the dribble. He's come out of pick and rolls a little bit. He's worked off some handoffs, but overall he's in the 36th percentile on jump shots. So when we talk about the most common play types, right? He's not going to handle the ball a lot in pick and roll. He is, I certainly do not want him on an Island working out of isolations. I I can't necessarily trust him all the time on spot up shooting. Like what, what does that leave him? So I'm going to have him out there to just be a transition finisher, right? If that's all he's really going to be on a consistent basis and he does not improve that jump shot. So what he's a bigger Matisse Thibel. Like, is that, is that the type of conversation that we're having? Like he can do all these great things on defense, but if the offensive value isn't there and you're try you're going up and down the court, when you get on offense, it, it's four on five offensively. Where, where does that leave you in the NBA? And like, I, I get that those guys can have a home on an NBA team. They can have a role. They can play a certain amount of minutes per night. But again, that starting number of minutes or that top eight rotational value I just think the NBA is drifting further away from, from those types of defensive specialists. I, I really do. And that's why Rain Repair, he has so much upside to where you can make a legitimate top 10 argument for him. But how likely is he to reach that type of upside? What is his more reasonable outcome? And is that reasonable outcome where the NBA is trending? I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on, on the argument I just made about Repair. I think that the offense is pretty raw. There's some on-ball juice that is kind of there. I think yep. I, I, he's he's you. got some hand he's got some handle ability that I think might have some pulp to the juice. Um, he's got some straight line drive stuff that he'll like. He can attack close out. Like yeah, he yep. can do some things. Yeah, I like his I like his play, his passing vision is also pretty interesting as well. I think the shot just needs to to come around. Now I know that we point to players and say like. Jarrett Culver was like a, Hey, if the shot comes around, like he's a really interesting dude, but sometimes it does come around late. Like look at what Josh Okoji is doing for, mm-hmm. for Phoenix right now. Look at Isaac Okoro just kind of out of nowhere decided that he wanted to be a reliable three point shooter. And that was the thing that he needed to work on which made him like a top 10 pick for Cleveland. So there are glimmering hopes there. I think that the, he does show some connective ability and but that defense is so gnarly. He is it, it so is, fri- man. he is so frightening. I a, a player I would be scared to death if he ran in a straight line at me. I would, I've said I'd this before. Fight. He's he's like Slender Man out there defensively. Yeah. It's it's remarkable to watch. And any other parting thoughts about repairs game, Maxwell? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Steven said. I think the the big thing that repair has is he's he's a really great athlete and he's got a seven three wingspan. He's got a bigger wingspan than a lot of guys that were projecting to be fours. And I think as his body fills out, it's it's going to be great. Um, he's got a fantastic frame. Uh, the other reason that I still kind of like repair is that yes, his offensive efficiency doesn't look great, but if you compare it to other guys who went through the Next Stars program, it's not bad at all. 
Like yeah. it's really not bad at all. Like most of those guys shot under 40%. So I'm not totally sweating his offensive inefficiency um, as opposed to like a guy who's playing in college. Is he pretty comfortably in the top 20 for you guys? Or are you still kind of like maybe, I I maybe he's like back half the first round? Yeah, I think he's like right around. He's right around there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so fair enough. That's kind of where I'm at with him as well. But yeah, some of the, if, if, if he can show more consistency in the jump shot or if we're like, you know, workouts, you know, a lot of pre-draft buzz, like if it's coming around, like the jumper might actually be a legitimate thing for him or at least more than he's shown then all of a sudden he skyrockets up to where like, yeah, you got to look at this guy in the lottery, but that's, that's one of the big separators. It's, it's finding balance with mm. all of these guys. So my biggest takeaway from us doing this podcast, first of all, thank you guys both for listening to me ramble on and on and on about all, all the stuff that I did, but I think it was for good reason because it helped me really contextualize what we're looking for in the NBA. Right. So mm-hmm. You, you need to, for the most part, be of a certain size because it helps you find that balance. If you're going to be more skewed in the offensive direction, you better be of a certain size and physical stature because if you're not, the bar that you have to clear as one of those smaller players is, is it's a lot higher than I think people would initially give credit for when we talk about a lot of these 6'2", 6'1", guards that, that fascinated us in college basketball. But when we actually sit down and plot out our big boards, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And on the flip side, if you're going to bring defensive value, that's great. Those guys have roles in the NBA, but you also need to be able to do something at a significant level, AKA primarily shooting is what the leagues for on the other end. You have to bring that value to where it's not just four on five offense on the other side of the court. Steven, any other big takeaways from, from the podcast episode we did? Dude, I'm again, I've, I've said it several times. I'm just super excited to read it because there's only so much that we can cover, you know, on, on a podcast form. And I know that you, they, based on previous work that I know that you've done, uh, I know that you're going to knock this out of the park. I just can't wait to, to get my morning dunk in, man. It's going to be great. Last but not least, Maxwell, any, any parting thoughts? No, that doesn't. I, I'm just, I love this kind of stuff. Like, I love, getting to do these like research kind of things like you did this week, like I did with like the shooting stuff, the Kobe Brown piece. Like I think that was great, which was phenomenal by the way. Yeah. It's so important to just like contextualize. And the more that we can put into context, like what are we looking at when we see these patterns and what patterns are happening in the leagues that we can project going forward? Like this is really important stuff as evaluators. Like it's not that it's a waste of time to be like, this is what this player does. This is what that player does. Like that's very important. It's very important to understand who these players are, but it's also important to understand them in the greater context and what, what their skill set actually means. And is it going to translate? Mm-hmm. Cause that's what evaluating is. It's, it's taking a look at these players and projecting forward. So I'm like beyond excited. I told you the other day, like I saw your, your, like uh, your piece sitting there in the sub sec and I tried to go in and peek and nothing was in there yet. And I was like, damn it. Like I really wanted to, to try and sneak a peek at the article. So I I'm, just excited to see you come into my inbox tomorrow morning. No, certainly. Again, you can find that column as well as what Maxwell and Steven are for sure working on this upcoming week. You can find all of that content, no ceilingsmba.com. Steven, what do you, what do you got cooking up? What's, what's your next written piece going to be about? Yeah. So I just uh, got back from scouting uh, Missouri versus Georgia. It was a great trip. The Steg is an awesome ar- arena to go and visit. Uh, the fans are crazy. I was able to watch uh, Des Moines Hodge and Kobe Brown play ball. I'm writing my featured piece based off of Des Moines Hodge, and I came away thoroughly impressed. He was easily the best player on the court that day. Um, 
and I'm going to have, you know, he's going to be my featured piece, but I'm going to be giving my notes on, on Kobe Brown as well. And I'm going to be putting that on on Friday. I'm going to be helping out Tyler Metcalf, who is uh, being a great student. He's going to go nail all of his classes that he has coming up. And I missed this Sunday, so I'm going to fill in Friday for him. He was gracious enough to give me give me a spot this week. Maxwell, what do you got in the lab this week? Yeah, so this week we've got Jalen Pickett coming down the pipeline. <laughs> it's just doing, just going, going for a weirdo territory Let's here. Go. Uh, a guy a lot of people like, a guy a lot of people just kind of write off because of his play style. If you're not familiar with Jalen Pickett, like just read the article and give give a Penn State game and watch because he is he is quirky. Uh, definitely a guy uh, to check out and keep an eye on. And then uh, if you're listening to this Monday morning, go to my Twitter. I've got a poll. For people to vote on who my feature will be next week. Let's so you go. Can pick. We got Cliff Amori. We got Oso Igadaro, Adam Flagler, Baylor Shireman. Pick your poison, people. That's some funky Let me know guys. Who you want to write about. Oh, and, and Nathan, if I may, um, real quick, this upcoming weekend, um, I'm going to go scout um, UCF versus ECU. So Ooh. I'm going to get an opportunity to go see Taylor Hendricks live in person and then kind of sneaky, like on the outside. Uh, Borders of my top 100. Uh, Brandon Johnson, who just had a fine game versus Houston the other night, actually. Uh-huh. So um, I'm really interested to go watch both of those guys play this uh, this upcoming Sunday. I can't I, wait to hear your thoughts. I will that. also be seeing Taylor Hendricks in person on Thursday. Going to see him at Temple. And then Saturday, I got UConn Villanova queued up at Wells Fargo Center. So next week, we're going to be talking about some great in-person evaluations. We'll get the Missouri guys in there next week. We'll get all of the conversation around Taylor Hendricks. We'll get some Camp Whitmore, Jordan Hawkins talk going. So yeah, ne- next week will certainly be a fun episode of Draft Team. We're along with we a also, special guest. Yeah, we, we're about to say we ha- we're going to be kind of breaking a little bit of news, so to speak. Like it might not be like new news, um, but it'll be it'll be pretty close. We're we're going to be having a, a two part draft deeper next week so make sure you are staying tuned to the podcast feed as well as everything we're doing on No Ceilings NBA. Com. Trust me, Stephen Maxwell, their written work this cycle has been absolutely phenomenal. And, and anything that you read of mine, I assure you what they're doing is of greater or, or, or at least the equal quality. Nah. You're being <laughs> super humble. You're being super humble. No, I'm not. Humble. Yeah, no, knock it off. Knock it no, off. I'm serious. Matt, Matt, well, Maxwell's Kobe Brown piece was actually really enlightening because we talked yes. about it. The it's, shooting leap, yeah, it was great. The, the the shooting leaps for for guys late in their careers, like that's a real thing. We evaluate these prospects. We see them go off, whether it's an NCAA tournament in their senior year or, or later in their senior year, whatever the case may be. We see these guys take these late shootings, and we're like, oh, they're all of a sudden they're going to be this amazing shooter in the NBA. It's like that doesn't always work out the way that you think it's going to work out. More times than not, it doesn't pan out like that. So it was really interesting to see. Max will do the research and the, yeah, I can't wait to read more of Steven's in-person insights, but that that's enough rambling from the draft deeper crew. You can find me on Twitter at draft deeper. You can find Steven on Twitter at Steven G hoops. You can find Maxwell on Twitter at bound boards and find no ceilings NBA, obviously at no ceilings NBA on Twitter, but subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the Substack until we meet again on this feed. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.